Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. All right, guys. The California recall was this week, and Gavin Newsom managed to survive the recall attempt. Uh, the recall, it's broken up into two parts. Uh, the first vote is to see if they want to recall the governor. And then if that passes, they do another vote to see who you would like to vote for to be the new governor. So technically, Gavin Newsom could have been recalled and still won won the election, but it didn't get to that point because there was not enough votes to recall him. You know, there's a saying that you get the government that you deserve. Well, California is about to get what it deserves because most people, not politicians, and certainly not all people, the more narcissistic our society becomes, but most people, if everyone at your job was so unhappy with your job performance that they actually initiated a vote to have you sent away, a lot of people would kind of think, you know, there's there's either something I need to do better or there's something that I'm doing that I need to stop doing, but I need to change my behavior on some level. That's not what politicians do, and that's certainly not what Gavin Newsom is going to do. He is not going to rethink his policies. He's going to double down out of spite. Mark my words, if you think California was draconian with COVID restrictions and lockdowns before, he is going to go full stormtroopers and thought police. He's probably reading 1984 right now, not because he wants to read the story by George Orwell. He's going to be reading it as a how-to manual. California is going to descend into madness that this country has never seen. But again, I don't live there, so I'm just going to enjoy watching it happen. And all I can say to the citizens of California is you brought it on yourself. Good job, everybody. All right, but I'm not talking about California tonight. Uh, What I want to talk about is Chapter 2 of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Uh, The chapter's name is Of Means and Ends. And we have heard the phrase, the ends justify the means a lot in politics the last 10 years. It is a very scary statement. Most people just kind of hear that statement and just move right along in the conversation. Uh, but it's it's basically saying I can do whatever the hell I want to do because it's for the best in the long run. That's not really how life works. It'd be the same if a preacher told somebody in church that you can do whatever the hell you want to and then just ask God to forgive you. Most people would understand that that is insanity and that's not that's neither the spirit of the law nor the letter of the law, but that has become sort of the rallying cry of the progressive left over the last decade. And I certainly don't think that Saul Alinsky invented the concept of the ends justify the means. In this chapter, he does not claim to do that. Basically, this chapter is a set of rules pertaining to the philosophy of the ends justify the means. He is not making uh, moral justifications for using that, nor is he condoning it, per se. He is more or less just, this is sort of the nuts and the bolts of how and when and why someone would use the means to justify the ends and, and vice versa. It's a little more philosophical than it is a call to action as far as this particular concept goes. But in throughout the chapter, he has got rules for applying means and ends. Uh, there's actually 11. I'm going to go over those now and I'll explain them as I go. So let's begin. Saul Alinsky's 11 rules dealing with ends and means. Okay, rule number one is that one's concern with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's distance from the scene of conflict. Now, basically what he's saying here is 
you know, it's much easier for a general to order his army to take a city. The infantrymen and the officers on the ground are the ones that actually have to deal with the consequences of taking that city. They are the ones that are going to be taking casualties. They're the ones that are going to be seeing the collateral damage. And that's not to say that the general does not feel for his men and for the people that affected by the attack. But the general has got a nice cushion between himself and all the things that are actually happening. Another good example is retail stores being open on Thanksgiving. That's a relatively new development in our society, and a lot of people really get upset by, you know, how can you ask those people to work on Thanksgiving Day? Well, a big part of that answer is, number one, the people making that decision, they're not going to be manning a register. They're going to be home with their families. Now, that's a little bit unfair. You know, they're not going to be manning a register any other day either, but that's what it comes down to. It's easy for that person to make that decision because they're not going to be the ones getting up and going into work. Uh, the rest of that problem, unfortunately, rests on us. Those stories wouldn't be open if we weren't going and buying crap. Stay out of the stores on Thanksgiving Day. They won't be open next year because they're not going to send people into work and incur the payroll costs if they're not making any money. So people can complain about it all they want to. As long as you're still going and buying crap on Thanksgiving Day, the stores are going to stay open. And I've got to be honest, it's nice knowing that if I'm doing meal prep for the Thanksgiving dinner and I realize, holy crap, we don't have stuffing. I forgot to get stuffing. It's nice knowing I can run to the grocery store real quick and get that stuff. It's very convenient. And again, I'm not working on Thanksgiving, so it's easy for me to say that. But, you know, at some point you've got to look at something and say, you know, well, it is what it is. You know, reality on reality's terms. There are customers that want to purchase things on Thanksgiving, so stores are going to be open. End of story. Stop pointing fingers at everybody else. Point a couple your way, and let's just get over it. You know, as a younger man, when I was working retail and I was working in the food service, I worked a bunch of holidays. It's not fun at the time, but it's character building, and it's supposed to be motivation for you to get off your butt, increase your skills, increase your marketability in the workplace, and you can get out of jobs that will have you working on the holidays. That's not a very popular opinion at this point. Everybody's supposed to be the victim, but most of the time you're the victim of your own decisions. And I'm kind of getting off topic here, but this is where this train of thought led me. So, But let's get back on track. Rule two for of ends and means is that the judgment of the ethics of means is dependent upon the political position of those sitting in judgment. And we can reuse the last example of retail stores being open on Thanksgiving you know, there are four different perspectives in that situation. Uh, the first perspective is the people that are going to be asked to work in that retail store on Thanksgiving. Then you have the perspective of the CEOs of those businesses that is deciding whether or not they will be open or closed on Thanksgiving. Then you have the perspective of people that enjoy being able to take that day and actually get some shopping done. A lot of people do Christmas shopping on Thanksgiving now. I have more of a let me eat too much food and watch the Cowboys lose a football game. And then you've got the perspective of the people that are just incensed that these evil, greedy CEOs are forcing their employees to go to work on a national holiday. Exact same situation, four different perspectives. It depends on where you are in that situation as to how you're going to feel about what is going on in that situation. And moving on to the third rule, in war, the ends justify almost any means. And how often in life have we heard the statement, all is fair in love and war? 
Saul Linsky uses a very good example to describe this particular rule. Uh, Winston Churchill was vehemently against communism. Uh, He was not a fan of Lenin or the Russian system. He had been very outspoken about Russia's communist society for many, many years. And then during World War II, Hitler broke the non-aggression pact that they had between Germany and Russia and invaded. Churchill was overjoyed by this development. Because Hitler opening up a new front on the war on the eastern side with Russia took a great deal of pressure off of Britain. Uh, One of Churchill's aides asked him, you know, how can you be supporting the communists? And haven't you been fighting against the communist system for a long time? Uh, Churchill's quote is, not at all. I have only one purpose, the destruction of Hitler. If Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make a favorable favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. Winston Churchill is just a quote machine. He had some really great statements through the years. But that's, you know, that's sort of the, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Churchill was not a fan of Lenin. He did not like the Russian system of government, but he was put in a position where that government was going to be fighting against a much larger threat to Britain. Therefore, he felt favorable about the fact of Russia entering the war on his side, even though he did not agree with them politically. Rule number four is that judgment must be made in the context of the times in which the action occurred and not from any other chronological vantage point. Basically, what Alinsky is saying here is that with the benefit of hindsight and new information gained after the fact, that can change how you feel about what was done. However, you can't fairly judge a situation taking that stuff into account. You have to look at it from the perspective of the people that were in that situation and with the information that they had. Uh, We've all heard the story about the the Battle of New Orleans actually happened after the British had surrendered or agreed to withdraw from the American colonies. And you can say, my God, you know, there was no need for that attack to happen. They just, all those guys got killed for no reason. Well, the British Army in New Orleans and the American Army defending it, they did not know that the war was over. So you can look at it from both ways, although only one is correct, because the men on the ground at that moment did not know that a peace agreement had been signed. They just knew there's an enemy, they're coming at me, I've got to defend myself. Or on the British side, you know, we've been ordered to take New Orleans, the order has been given to move forward, I've got to follow that order. That's the only way you can look at it. Looking at it any other way is unfair to the people in that situation. Rule number five says that concern with ethics increases with the number of means available and vice versa. This one's pretty self-explanatory. The more options you have, you can consider the options based on how well they're going to work, how much damage they're going to do, costs involved. You You have the luxury of choices is basically all that's saying. Now, obviously, if it's a desperate situation and there's only one option, there's no ethical decision at all. That's what you have to do. But if you have more than one option, you have the luxury of choosing the best option of what you have available. Rule number six says, the less important the end to be desired, the more one can afford to engage in ethical evaluations of the means. Again, that one is fairly self-explanatory. If it's a fairly mundane task that you're trying to get accomplished, you don't need to do anything crazy and extreme to get it done because everybody is going to look at that and say, wow, you went way too far on that. That was way overboard. Again, that that one's pretty self-explanatory. The seventh rule says that 
generally success or failure is a mighty determinant of ethics. And basically that is coming down to, you know, history is written by the victors. We managed to defend the colonies from the British in the Revolutionary War. And so Sam Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they're the founding fathers. They're these great patriots. If we had lost and British regained control of the colonies, those men would have been branded traitors and they would have been put to death. Same men, exact same actions, two completely different outcomes based on who won that conflict. The eighth rule says that morality of a means depends upon whether the means is being employed at a time of imminent defeat or imminent victory. The example that Mr. Alinsky gives in this is the U.S. dropping the bomb. And Mr. Alinsky believed that had we dropped the bomb directly after Pearl Harbor, now obviously the atomic bomb had not been developed at that point, but he said if we were to have dropped it in retaliation to Pearl Harbor, he feels like it would have been more morally justifiable because, you know, we were had just been attacked, we were sort of in a panic, the Pacific fleet was decimated, we really didn't have any defense. If they chose to come to America, that was never Japanese part of the Japanese battle plan, by the way. But he felt that it was unethical for us to drop the bomb at the end of the war because because Japan's defeat at that point was inevitable. Um, you know, Russia was entering the Pacific theater. Uh, we had pretty much taken all of the surrounding islands. We had bases that we could bomb Tokyo. And he felt like that you know, we should have just let the war play out. I have discussed my feelings on this matter. Around 300,000 people died in the two bombings. Low-end estimates of an invasion of mainland China were at about 10 million. 10 million people versus 300,000 people. There's no equation to work there. A lot of people are upset that we dropped the bomb. They felt like that was more than what we should have done. That was the best for all parties involved. I know that a lot of people don't like hearing that. It's the truth. It saved lives and it ended the war much, much faster than we ever could by invading the mainland. The ninth rule says that any effective means is automatically judged by the opposition as being unethical. And again, Mr. Alinsky gives a good example here. Uh, If you remember the name Francis Marion from the Revolutionary War, he was the general from South Carolina that we, most people know him as the Swamp Fox. Francis Marion took his group of guerrilla fighters into the swamp where the British had a very hard time finding them. And they employed very classic guerrilla tactics, you know, uh, hit-and-run strikes, sabotage, uh, going after supply lines, kidnapping British officers, you know, things that the British found extremely distasteful. In the American colonies, obviously, he became a folk hero. Uh, but then we face basically the same tactics in Vietnam, uh, hit-and-run, people hiding in the civilian population. In that situation, we were not very happy with those guerrilla tactics. We were on two different sides of the coin, so we feel two different ways about those tactics. The 10th rule states that you do what you can with what you have and clothe it with moral garments. That statement can sort of be boiled down to simply everybody thinks that what they're doing is the right thing to do. It's very rare that you meet somebody that's doing something and while they're doing it, they're thinking, this is terrible. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm a horrible person. That's not. That's just not how people operate. Everybody is going to find a justification for what they're doing. It sort of sums up the ends justify the means perfectly. You know, you have come up with a reason that what you're doing is okay. And sometimes people have a good 
end in mind. Sometimes they don't. But everybody does things because they have decided that that is the right thing to do. To back up this rule, uh, Saul Alinsky uses the example of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, Now, Mahatma Gandhi very famously petitioned the British for Indian independence through passive resistance, uh, hunger strikes, sit-ins, but he was never a proponent of violence against the British crown. He just was wanting to bring about social change. Saul Alinsky believes that the legend of this very peaceful, thoughtful man is something that's been built up around Gandhi after the fact. Solinsky makes the argument that peaceful protest was the only route open to Gandhi. Uh, the Indian people were not allowed to have guns, so they they could not fight the British, and they didn't have the numbers. Even if they did have the guns, they would, still would have been slaughtered. So Gandhi made the decision to do what he did because that was really the only path open to him. And it is after the fact that we have given him this air of such a peaceful, thoughtful, pious man. And Saul Linsky believes that if he'd have had 100,000 soldiers with 100,000 rifles, he probably would have chosen open rebellion. There's really no way to know if that was what he would have done, because obviously he didn't have those things. It's You're sort of judging things after the fact at that point, and it's really not, there's no reason to argue that point. It's interesting to think about the possibility, but I just really don't think it's very constructive to judge his actions based on something that was never going to happen. The 11th and final rule states that goals must be phrased in general terms like liberty, equality, fraternity, or of the common welfare, or pursuit of happiness, or bread and peace. What Alinsky is saying when he says that is Oftentimes in the course of an action, either public sentiment will change, um, a new goal will come about. Something can change in the course of, say, a revolution, or he gave the example of the Civil War. He said the North began fighting the Civil War to preserve the Union, and by the end of the war, it had become about emancipating the slaves. Uh, You're still doing the same action. Your goal is still, quote-unquote, the same, But public sentiment changed somewhere along the way, or the perception of what you're trying to do became something slightly different. Uh, There's a quote in the book that says, the goal once named cannot be countermanded. I think what Alinsky is saying here is if you name your goal too specifically, people can either lose interest in it, or they will feel that the stated goal has been achieved and sort of lose interest. It's a little bit of a cynical way to look at a movement. But it is one of the rules, so I'm including it here. And that basically wrapped up the chapter. Uh, There's a little bit more just concerning his personal philosophy. But the 11 rules for ends and means was far and away the meat of the chapter. And really, the ends justify the means is, is pretty much just how we live our lives. You know, everybody does a risk reward assessment of everything, and that's a very pompous term for it. But I mean, just to everything you do, you know, you'll decide to purchase something based on whether or not you're going to have the money available to purchase it that month. Uh, you'll say, I can't start this project right now because I've got to leave in 20 minutes to pick up the children. Well, you're leaving something that should get done aside for the time being because you don't have the time to get it completed. Like I say, it's every decision you make every day is based on the fact of the ends justify the means. We don't think of it that way, but that's what you're doing. You're making decisions on an action based on the outcome that you're wanting to have. There is, in socioeconomics, there's a term called opportunity cost. 
And that basically says everything that you do comes at the expense of something else that you could have done. A very easy to understand example of this is there's a local band that you like playing at a venue in town, but there's also a movie that you wanted to go to. Obviously, you can't go see the band and you can't go to the movies at the same time. So you have to decide which one do you want to do. Um, going to work is an opportunity cost. You're giving up the opportunity to sleep in, read a book, go do something with your family. And you're giving that stuff up because you need to earn money. So you're giving up the opportunity to spend time with your family and do your own thing in order to earn cash to pay the bills. The ends justify the means at its base level is just the decision-making process we go through in everything that we decide to do. The ends justify the means only becomes dangerous when it is used by extremists to give a little bit of credibility to their actions. You know, when the Bolsheviks took over Russia in 1918, they went on a purge. Now, their belief and the reason that they said they were doing this purge was because the landowners and the political appointees and the business owners were so tainted by capitalist ways that there was no way to redeem them, and they would always be fighting against the new workers' utopia. And like I say, they did not banish these people out of the country. They rounded them up and killed them. Now, this was supposed to be to further the goal of reaching a workers' utopia. But it really didn't quite work out the way they intended. And I I could make a pretty strong argument that that was never the intent to begin with. But in order to move further along the road toward this workers' utopia, they killed Anyone who had been in any sort of power, anybody that owned land, and more importantly, they killed all the business owners. Now, the reason that this is more important than killing the political leaders is because if you think about it, business is what keeps the country running. The businessmen in Russia were the ones who not only knew how to get food from the fields to the people, they're the ones who knew how to repair the infrastructure. Uh, if you had a wagon that was broken down, that was somebody that could repair it. And, you know, producing clothes, producing tools, producing any kind of good you can think of. And not only just producing it, being able to move it from where it is produced into the hands of the consumers in the market. The Bolsheviks killed all of those people. And what they found out later is all of a sudden, you know, we don't know anybody. There's nobody left alive that knows how to repair the roads. There's nobody left alive that knows how to repair carts. There's nobody that knows how to move all this grain from the outskirts of Moscow into the markets. And what happened is, is everything in Russia fell apart. Millions of people starved to death. That is what the result of them doing this purge after the revolution was over. Actual numbers are hard to pin down. Russia did not keep very good records and that you know again I could argue that they didn't want people knowing what had happened so they didn't keep records intentionally but I've seen estimates of you know 10 million people starved to death and that's not people that the Bolsheviks decided to put to death that's just 10 million of their citizens couldn't get enough food not to die but of course if you ask the Bolsheviks and if you ask Lenin how he felt about 10 million of his citizens starving to death in their homes he might have said, well, the ends justify the means. 
And there's one more little thing I want to say about Russia before we wrap this one up. I'm running a little bit long. All the terrible things that happened after the Bolshevik Revolution with you know killing all the business people, all the craftsmen. There's one thing that sounds comical and it sounds made up, but it's absolutely true. They killed all the craftsmen and business owners. One of the little things that you don't hear much about and one of the consequences of that is clocks at that time were not mass produced. They were hand built pieces of art, basically. And most people didn't have a clock, but most towns would have a clock. You know, rich people would have a clock. Well, after about 10 years after the Bolshevik Revolution, all the watchmakers and the clockmakers had been killed, so there was nobody to repair the few clocks that were in the country. Within like 10 years, every clock in Russia had stopped working. Nobody in Russia from like 1920, I'm sorry, about 1930, probably through to the end of World War II, nobody knew what time it was in Russia. And that sounds like a joke, but it's the truth. I mean, there were no clocks. I mean, obviously you could tell what's, you know, the sun's in the way up in the sky. It's about noon, but nobody knew exactly what time it was in Russia for like 30 years. And that's called a worker's paradise. Although I have to admit a world where alarm clocks doesn't exist does sound pretty nice. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's about all I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope it was informative. If you did enjoy the show, a like, a subscription, and a comment would be greatly appreciated. As always, you can leave me a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com, or you can go to the Facebook page. All right, guys, I hope you're enjoying your weekend. Everybody have a nice time. I will talk to you again on Monday, and have a good one. Thank you very much.